Hello, hello, I'm Celeste, and this is Week by Week. On today's episode, I start with a conversation with my husband where we unpack our relationship and how we're doing. Ooh, vulnerable, we're going there. And later on, our guest is the wonderful Lauren Archer. Here we go. Hi, baby. Hey, baby. I'm just gonna start this off by saying I'm emotional and I'm hormonal. And so it seems like a perfect time to talk about our relationship postpartum. Yes. <laughs> I'm just feeling it today. So I wanted to take a little time. I'm putting it out there so you know exactly where I am. And I oh, think there's... I know. Oh, I know. Well, I know you know. But I think there's power in just stating it and saying, you know, hey, here's where I am. I agree with that too. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about sex and intimacy and connection once you have a baby. Great. So it's easy to start off, I think, in the place of all of the things that prevent that list from happening. <laughs> yeah. We're exhausted. You're busy. I know my brain is on overdrive. I'm thinking about keeping my baby safe and is he getting the right meals and does he need to nurse? It's everything that makes your mind completely full in a way it's never been full before. I can relate to the extent that I am able. <laughs> we know some of the reasons of why it's hard. And then there's also the hormonal component too, like postpartum, your hormones are different. And so in terms of sex, like something that I was told by friends and my OBGYN is like, you are probably going to be drier down there. Like just to be, I'm going to be really upfront about what we're talking about here, but you know, your hormones are working differently. And I don't know if that's just with breastfeeding or if that's in general postpartum. I can't imagine that it wouldn't affect everyone postpartum to some degree because your hormones are just in such a flurry afterward. But for anybody who is currently at that stage, the thing that I was told by literally everyone I talked to was lube is your friend. So I'm here to pass it on to you. If you have not heard that advice yet, lube is your friend. And what a good friend it is. <laughs> DM me if you want recommendations. But like, I was nervous, really nervous the first time we got cleared after six weeks. And to be honest, I was like, I have no idea how this is going to feel. I was warned it was really going to hurt. I really, you know, we went very slow and, you know, honestly, I think it was better than I was expecting, but it truly felt like the feelings I had before I lost my virginity. It felt very similar. You expressed that to me beforehand. I think we took it relatively slow. Yeah. You're doing a podcast about this topic, so I would imagine people listening to this would not be surprised to learn that you read and you get <laughs> ahead of things and you try to understand what's coming, and which I love about you. And you did that, you know, for so many of the different aspects of this, including that. Yeah. In general, one thing that I think I did read about, which is a huge topic, is how to have a sex life postpartum because I think you are so tired. Like I said, you have a million things on your mind. By the end of the day, you're just worn out. And it's, it is hard if we're being honest to try to fit all of that in. What has your experience been like going through this new phase of things? It's been difficult. It hasn't been what I think we talked about hoping it would be. And yet 
we've had some really good examples of our physical sex life. I think that we've had intimacy and closeness, Mm -hmm. a lot of it. And then there's the challenge of just time and space Mm -hmm. for the fullest expression of that Mm -hmm. physically. It's been hard. And knowing that there's probably not a perfect time to do it and just being like, well, we have some time. We haven't had sex for a couple of days. You want to, you know, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's not how you, yeah, exactly. It's, it's that particular activity is not one that was just like, Oh, you know what? I got, uh, I got five minutes. Uh, let's just go and, uh, you know, like it's, it's different than say a lot of activities that, that we all do for fun and for release and for intimacy. One article I have pulled up here, I think specifically said, don't rely on spontaneity. Like this is not the time of your life where sex is going to be about spontaneity. It'll be about a lot of different things, but there's always something that's going to get in the way. I have not been not tired for a single day since, not even since our son was born, since third trimester. Like, I don't, I don't think I've slept truly well for over a year at this point. And so like, you know, there is tired, there is whatever. And, and it's important to honor your body, but it's also important to make room and space in whatever way you need to, to have a physical connection. Damn straight. I think something I expressed to you recently for being going, continuing on the vulnerability train is feeling just in general, like you and I have not had a lot of time to connect just emotionally. You're right. We've had a lot of intimacy, but lately it's been like, we haven't had a lot of alone time or we haven't had time to just like have a conversation or, you know, we finally have time to have a conversation and it ends up turning into a fight because that's the only time we have to actually just talk about the hard things or like, you know, it's, it's hard to just have that like silly time and making an effort to carve space to even when you're exhausted and want to decompress and just like scroll on your phone, take that opportunity to turn toward your partner sometimes instead. Yeah. And we've had little successes around that. And we've had a bunch of times where it hasn't worked out, but we keep trying, you know, something that I think we're in a good place about, even if we're not at the level of physical, you know, intimacy that we want to be, Mm -hmm. I think that we found a good lane and like one side of the lane is that we are having sex and it is, it's up to our standards (laughs) and we're figuring it out and we're making it happen and it's not as much as we would want, but mm-hmm. we are doing it. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, we're still aspiring to have, you know, get back to the level that we were. Mm-hmm. And we're, but in between, the most important thing is to me is that we're very real and vocal about what is actually going on, mm-hmm. what, what we're missing, what we want more of, but also that when we are getting that chance and we are making that space or we're finding that magic time, that we're appreciative of it and we are so valuing each other. So, you know, in this larger topic, it just isn't one size fits all. It just isn't. I mean, that's just not what it is. Well, yeah, like whatever our structure is, whatever number or, you know, type of intimacy or whatever works for us, it's a good reminder to like 
to continue with this lane metaphor, to stay in your own lane. Because I think you can look and see like what other people are doing and get so in your head about like, is it enough? Is it too much? Is this problem the problem I should be having? Is this normal? And as opposed to thinking like, okay, well, this is where we are. And like, is it working for me? And like, I think it's really important to have that check in with yourself. And remember, it doesn't matter what other people are doing. It's about you and it's about your partner. Thinking about this kind of topic of one size fits all makes me think a lot about my conversation with the guest today because not only do we really get into the topic of advocacy and knowing what you want and what's right for your body and and remembering that that's not selfish to know what you want for yourself, but we also talk about different types of births. For example, like I had a birth at the hospital with my OBGYN and due to lots of reasons was very monitored throughout the entire birth experience and leading up. And for me, for my brain, for my heart, I needed to have those numbers and those stats and to know everything was okay and and to check in on that level. She's a doula and she talks about her own experience with birth and wanting things to be a little bit more like, quote, wild and didn't want to give birth in a hospital. And so I guess my point on all that is just it's really important to remember making the choices that feel right for you and your body and your family. Absolutely. I, of course, went to the Gottman Institute, some of their resources. This one's called The Golden Rule for New Parents to Keep Romance Alive. So in their research, this says couples can be engaged and protect their relationship without sacrificing the bond with their child. With just a little effort, couples can maintain emotional closeness by following the golden rule of relationships. Small things often. So it says turning toward each other, especially in moments of heightened stress, creates a sense of connection and emotional intimacy. Practicing simple gestures to preserve the relationship makes for a more manageable transition to parenthood. It says turn toward bids for connection. Requests from partners can be simple things like touching the hand, touching your hand, or something as literal as like, take a look at me, what do you think? They talk about the importance of recognizing a bid for conversation, a bid for sex, a bid for affection, a bid for attention, a bid for humor. And it gives some examples of that and remembering to turn toward your partner in those moments whenever you can. Yeah. I love thinking about how we interact, that it's maybe has another layer to it. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really interesting and cool. And then... My little side commentary would be just like, isn't it sad that we as humans can't just say bluntly what we want? (laughs) It's so hard to just say, would you come and hug me? So my only thought on that is like, yes, I think that we can practice being more literal in what we're saying. But I think sometimes it's not a veiled attempt at a connection, saying one thing and hoping for another response. But it's saying like, here's a thing that really interests me. And by you engaging with me on it, even if it's not a thing that interests you, you fill me up because you're engaging in my passion and that's a way to connect. Okay. So I could hear it that way too. (laughs) But I do think, I do think we could fundamentally get better at just saying, Hey, I need you or Hey, I'm sad. Will you hold me or whatever it is. 
it says expressed fondness and admiration. So Dr. Gottman encourages couples to quote, catch your partner doing something right. And research shows that if couples are in the habit of viewing their relationship from a negative perspective, they miss half of the positive things their partner does. I think we're actually pretty good at that. I agree. I agree. But you can see where you can start falling into traps if you start, you know, it's easy to start seeing the negative or creating narratives, I think, yeah. of, well, this connects to this, that connects to this. And these are all examples of how they're just like not thinking of me or whatever. And it is a trap. It says you can create a, quote, culture of appreciation. So some of the examples they gave you were like, you were so great with the baby last night. It really made me smile. Or you're an awesome dad. You're so calm and patient with the baby. Or thanks for making dinner tonight. I know you have your hands full. Things like that. And then that says, make partings and reunions a routine part of your day. I like this, actually, because it's a moment to remember to stop and connect. It's also something that I think is really interesting because creating healthy partings and reunions for your child is such an element of healthy attachment. And to remember that that's actually something to nurture in your relationship with your romantic partner, I think is a really good reminder. So some of the, it's called quote, rituals of connection. And it's like, sending them off with a kiss and the, you know, their coffee or making the bed before you go, which you're really good at things like that. Have daily stress reducing conversations, stay mindful and present while showing genuine interest in what your partner has to say, which can be incredibly hard when you're tired. Seek understanding before giving advice. That sounds overwhelming. I'd be at my wits end too. I can totally understand how you feel. Oh, I love that one so much. Oh, it's so hard to do when you love somebody because you want to fix things. But if you can just create that space, that is such a superpower. I'm working on that one. You're doing great. <laughs> Offering support, showing affection, helping aid in problem solving. So it doesn't mean that you don't get the opportunity to help problem solve. It's just knowing that, that you can do both. And sometimes first just creating space is enough. And then, oh, this is actually what we were talking about. Never stop dating your partner. So it says plan monthly date nights, keep mutual hobbies sacred, make a date night a regular part of your week, watch comedy together, laughing and laughter and humans raises humans. <laughs> laughter and humor raises endorphins and lightens the mood. You saw the the word raise and you thought human because you were raising a human. That's what, that was my Freudian slip. That's what your Freudian slip was. Yeah. So anyway, I'll include this. Just some good tips to think about. Send it to me too because you didn't send it to me. You just popped it on me in this podcast and it looks interesting. I'll send it to you. And you know what? Thanks for showing up. Thanks for being vulnerable. And thank you for creating a space where we don't need to do this perfectly. We just need to try. Oh, baby. Thank you for creating that space too. I love you. I love you. On today's episode, we have Lauren Archer. Lauren is a mom, doula, and lactation specialist that brings non-judgmental and unbiased support to families of all shapes and sizes. She's passionate about spreading how important care is for every parent, including families that grow via surrogacy and adoption, and supporting all families regardless of race, religion, or gender. 
She's a research nerd, so education about the why and how allows her to leave families with confidence and knowledge to make informed decisions. To say this work is a passion of hers just isn't enough. Birth work lives in her soul, and she feels fortunate not only to be able to help families on their journey, but also to love every minute while she does. She resides in Los Angeles with her husband, son, and dog. I loved talking to Lauren. She has such an incredible energy, and there are so many gems in this conversation that I've truly been thinking about so much since we talked. So let's do this. I wanted to start off, if you don't mind just defining what a doula and what a lactation specialist is. Sure. So like the base answer for a doula is they provide emotional, physical, mental support during birth, labor, postpartum. I think that in recent years, the explanation of a doula has kind of expanded. There's really a big need for advocacy. Our system is broken. The birthing system is broken. And so some doulas feel comfortable enough stepping into an advocacy role in the birth space, the postpartum space, all that kind of stuff. And then in terms of a lactation expert, I've been a doula for about six years, five and a half, six years. And for the last two years, I have been studying specifically lactation. There's obviously a lot that goes into like getting your certifications and stuff like that. Some of it is money. A lot of it is time. And so it has been a big focus of my practice, my career. That was something I heard over and over again when I was starting my own birth process of like, a doula can really be an advocate for you because sometimes you're not able to in the moment or you don't want to rely on your partner to do it or there are other pressures or you've never been through it, a bunch of things. Can you speak to a little bit how you think about that and work through those dynamics with your people you work with? Sure. Yeah. I mean, when I was trained as a doula years ago, there were very few doula programs, training programs, certifying programs, all that other stuff. And a lot of these big box programs would say that you pretty much like keep to yourself. You keep the doctor happy. You're there to like do double hip squeezes, which is like, ha ha ha. That's so funny. And you're really there to just like be a hand to squeeze when they're pushing. And, and the idea of advocacy was not that you spoke for the client, but that like, if a doctor is, or a care provider is suggesting that they have an intervention or something that you are supposed to turn to your client and be like, how do you feel about, but the problem with that, as we have recently been very vocal. It's been very vocal with Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ, the expansion of what that means and how gender is fluid is that what we started to notice in the gaps was that all along, not only is it impossible to advocate for yourself when you're in labor, because you were like, go into it, go into the birth bubble, like all that. And then all of a sudden you snap out because someone's like asking you if you want a cervical check, like your head, you're, you're not in that space but also how marginalized birthing people often bear the brunt of this gap. They are treated differently, you know, their preferences, their birth plan, all this stuff is kind of thrown out the window. And so it really started to, in the birth world, the last couple of years be like, Hey, people just can't advocate for themselves. And like, it's nice to think that you can be that hand to squeeze if the birthing person you're supporting is white <laughs> because of systemic racism. We know that there's already the system put into place that you just breeze through and you're more likely to have your wishes be respected if you're white. And the matter is, is that if you are a person of color, LGBTQ, all this other, these other marginalized groups that you just don't get listened to. Mm -hmm. And so it really started to come to the forefront of the birth world of like advocacy is a dualist 
job. There's a lot more trainings now that focus on language. They focus on advocacy. They focus on really being like, you are supposed to be this person who watches out for your client. You're supposed to help with reducing trauma, not just being there to witness trauma, which is kind of how it used to be of like, hey, you don't ever talk back to a doctor. I don't agree with that. I have a doula partner as well. And it's the biggest thing that I have to tell people in the hospital, the care providers is she said, no, they said, no, Mm. why are you not listening? And so it is, it is something advocacy is a huge part of a doula's responsibility. I think it's so easy to get really narrow in your perspective of birth. And so it's amazing that there are people there who are really expanding how we're looking at birth and how we advocate for ourselves. And that's incredible. In terms of the lactation side of things, will you talk a little bit about how, what your approach is or kind of what your focus is in working with somebody on the lactation side? Yeah, absolutely. So lactation, I like to use more so as in terms of breastfeeding, because breastfeeding is one way to feed a baby. (laughs) There's lots of other ways. And so lactation, if a person chooses to lactate, there are plenty of ways to take that human milk and get it into the body of your baby. And so it really is that it's like prenatally, I think it's incredibly important to take classes to, to link up with someone who knows what they're talking about. Um, in Los Angeles, where I'm from, it's pretty rare that hospitals have um, lactation programs, not even to say that they're good ones. So like, I know of like one smaller hospital that like has a really great lactation program. So what that means is that in a hospital setting, you're getting just nurses who are like, hey, maybe you should try this. Maybe you should do that. Or even in a home birth, a midwife has more lactation information, but they don't have everything. And, and I don't fault them for that. Like you don't go to a nurse for lactation information or how to feed your baby or how much formula to put in a bottle and all this other stuff. And so my approach is a lot of it is just education, which is how I approach everything in the, in the birth space. Base level education can get you pretty far, but if your baby isn't born yet, I don't know. I haven't met them. And so it's pretty much like base level. And again, learning how to advocate for yourself. Advocacy Mm. is a huge, a huge part of it in knowing like, actually I have someone that I took a class with and I, I line them up after the birth and I'm declining your help right now. I'm actually going to call them. And that takes a lot of strength and bravery in a lot of settings, but that is usually how I approach of like, Hey, contact someone prenatally and get that information and start to set up that network of, of trust. And it, it is, you know, every just like birth and parenthood and everything, it is incredibly unique. And mm-hmm. I, when I go for home visits, I'm there for about an hour and a half to two hours. I'm checking in with you 24 hours after I leave. I'm going to check in with you a week after that. Like we are going to be on this journey together because things change. And a lot of it is just like experimentation. <laughs> like, Hey, we've got this down. We've got the positioning and all this, but like in terms of timings and how your boobs are going to be and all this other stuff, like, I don't know, we just got to wait and see. Mm-hmm. But like most people aren't like, Oh, my mom sat down with me for an hour and a half, two hours and showed me the ins and outs of breastfeeding. And, and it's, and it's not one size fits all. It is really, really unique because everybody is unique and every baby is unique. And so it's impossible to the, you know, prenatal classes are great, but the one thing that I constantly repeat is like, this is a valid reason to reach out to someone. I do think it is so hard to speak up for yourself and to even, I know I have a question, but I don't know what the question is. Like to even know what I don't know or what I really need inside of this ask was really confusing at times. And so to have somebody to help you figure that out, I think is huge. 
I call it the fishbowl. So like when you're inside the fishbowl, it's really hard to see what the water looks like, how much there is, like how much room you have. And that is what pregnancy and postpartum and everything that goes along with it is you're in the fishbowl. And for someone to be able to be outside the fishbowl and be like, whoa, 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 like you're swimming around in one inch green tinged water. Like, let me clean out the bowl. Let me help you fill this back up so that you feel good about the space that you're in. I can't fix every problem, maybe like with the snap of my fingers, but you have someone here who's outside the fishbowl who can really hold up that mirror because you don't know what you don't know. And, and even for everything that I knew, you know, pregnancy and postpartum is such this like mental cloud that I was very much stuck inside of a fishbowl when I was pregnant. I was like, okay, sure. Whatever to things that like, if a client had told me that I would be like, okay, let's have a conversation. Like, let's talk about what that means. Like, is that really necessary? Did you truly consent? And in my pregnancy, I was just like, oh, sure. Like whatever. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, Mm -hmm. even though I did know, but I, you don't, because it's totally different. Every decision feels like it has the weight of the world on its shoulders because you are like, I don't want to do anything to negatively impact my child but you have these gut things that you know as well. So how do you balance or spin all those plates? Yeah, it's, it's really hard. And honestly, like I find that, you know, a lot of people the advocacy and the spinning of plates is so much easier. The second, third, fourth, fifth time pregnancy, like we're planning eventually to have a second child, but I'm already like, it's going to be as wild of a pregnancy as possible, which is pretty much like, there's no care provider, there's no tests, no anything like that, because it was that stuff that really like those results just flared my anxiety. And so like one of the biggest things in my first pregnancy is it like you push, you get pushed to the edge sometimes. And so like my son, I had gestational diabetes and Mm. So I was going to a perinatologist and there was a risk of shoulder dystocia because they kept saying he was going to be massive, which whatever, that's a whole other conversation. But I had a really great conversation with several of the midwives that I was birthing with. And it was really just like all my options laid out there and they gave me space and time. And I felt so confident that like one of the options is basically like if you're birthing a baby with shoulder dystocia, one of the last things that we want to do, but is an option as you break the baby's collarbone. Mm. There was a moment where like the first thought that came out of my mind was break his collarbone. Like I was startled and my husband was like, what did she just say? And I think that I'd been pushed so far. Like this almost feels like a flight or flight situation. And it felt like a really selfish decision. But then I really had a talk with my midwife and I was like, she's like, you're allowed to be selfish. Mm. Everyone wants a healthy baby, but like what happens is all of these babies, if left alone, they they do come out healthy. (laughs) Like, but on the road is we destroy the mental health of the birthing people. And it was like that moment that was like a switch where I was like, you're right. I've weighed the risk and benefits. And if we break his collarbone, he will be fine. But if I go into a hospital, I will not be fine. Mm. That was a huge catalyst for like self-advocacy and being like, okay. But it was also a really big decision that I felt like with the perinatologist had been like, oh, just schedule a C-section. So then going into an hour long conversation with my midwives who were like, these are all the options. We put you in these positions. We do this, we do that, we do this. And this is the last resort, which we do not want to do, but it is an option. And so information is power. And it was like, great. I feel really good about all those things. That's a good thing to be in line with yourself and know what you need. How do you get people to take out some of the noise and hone in on the thing that is important to them? 
for me personally, a lot is education. And so I am a very fact-based person. Obviously, as a parent myself, a birthing person myself, like I have biases towards my choices and what I want to do. And I don't think my answer breaking the collarbone is right for every single person, but it is something where like, you cannot argue with stats and facts and figures. And, you know, we do, when we work with clients, I really advocate for classes like childbirth ed classes. We, I teach a childbirth ed class. I teach a prenatal breastfeeding class. And so what happens is you start to build this trust with this person who you've spent time and you understand like, oh, they're coming from a logical point or factual point. And I am very border of the line. And so when, when you present of like, Hey, statistically, like intermittent monitoring and continuous monitoring, like statistically the, the outcomes really aren't different. So knowing that information, how do you feel about being hooked up to continuous monitoring? How do you feel about possibly doing intermittent instead? Also in a different hospital setting or versus a home birth setting. Like if someone is desiring, like we had a client who was like, I really wanted to do a home birth, but I am afraid of if something goes wrong. We hear that all the time. And it's pretty much like then like, great, let's break down how we can have a hospital or a home birth-esque vibe in a hospital setting. And the, and the monitoring is a great example. And it's like, why in a, in a home birth, you would get Dopplered every like, I don't know, 30 minutes, every hour, like when it's necessary. <laughs> like, And it was kind of like, Oh, I didn't even realize that you didn't have to be hooked up to a monitor. And mm. it's like, Nope, you don't like people just don't know what they don't know. And then you walk into certain settings. And so a lot is breaking down, like what you're going to be offered, why you might be offered it. How do you feel about that? Also, you can change your mind. Like consent can be taken away. Like you, you can consent to one vaginal exam. And that doesn't mean that you're consenting to every vaginal exam. You can consent to continuous monitoring. And then, you know, a half an hour later, be like, I want this off of me. Great. Let's get it off of you. If there's no reason. Also, if someone's presenting a reason, is it a valid reason? Are they pulling numbers out of their hat? <laughs> 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 because it's not hard to find statistics and facts. And I'll, I'll go to evidencebasedbirth.com and tell you exactly right now the, the true facts and figures and, and statistics of intermittent versus continuous. And so you can't argue. It's just, you can't do that when you're in labor, right? No one's Googling evidence in between contractions. And so, <laughs> so this is where the education, like if your partner knows that you can do that, if, if it's something that like, it even puts that seed of like, actually, that is a fact that I want to know. Cause maybe I'll write it down and maybe I'll have my partner say that. And that can be really helpful. So really, I feel like 95% of birth is prepping. I mean, and so many great reminders in there, like you can change your mind and consent can be taken away because in too many facets of our lives, we do forget, like I can change my mind. I can be so sure. And I can go back on that. And that doesn't mean that I'm unstable. It means that I'm like very sure. And with something so quickly changing as birth and labor, that it's like what felt okay at the beginning of labor might not feel okay at the middle. And that's great. Like we're all here for you. I sent this set of stories to my doula partner. She takes a lot of the hospital births. So I sent this to her and I was like, oh my God, look at this. And it was this wonderful breach birth in a hospital. And I was like, breach birth is cool. But like, do you notice like how slow everything is moving? Like how they ask consent, how they give her space to move and position, how they respect her wishes, how they treat her like a human being. And it's not that it's impossible. It's just that no one does it. 
Mm-hmm. It, that shouldn't, all those things that I just said should not be an outlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like They should be the standard. Off of that, like this is a gigantic question, but like, what do you think it is that prevents that from happening? I think that what prevents it is the system. I don't fault the people in the system. I don't fault nurses who are overworked and exhausted, but it shouldn't be this option of like, okay, I have the choice of going into a hospital and it may traumatize me, but at least it will check the box that I know if something goes wrong, my baby will be okay. Or I am going to be in a home birth setting and I will be totally listened to, but I will have this anxiety about what's happening. And when you have anxiety, you can't birth your baby. And so you're stuck in between these two anxious spaces for some people. And it's like, how do we make all these spaces safe? Mm -hmm. And it's, we start to listen to the people who are in these spaces going, you know, where are we putting our state monies? Births are incredibly escalated prices in hospitals. And so it's like, what are you paying for? Um, They're already inflated due to insurance and the fun stuff that happens here in America (laughs) with insurance, but it doesn't really, it's costing you a lot and it's not just monetary. And so it's nice that you got a room with a window, but if you walk out of that room with a window completely traumatized and have no postpartum services or mental health services on the back end, it's, it's a disservice all the way through. If you are working with somebody who is traumatized, what is kind of the way that you start to navigate that? My approach is always transparency. I'm a pretty honest person. (laughs) I walk lightly, but as a birth worker, I don't want to traumatize anyone further. But as a mother, there are times that I really will be like, hey, I'm taking off my doula hat right now and I'm happy to line up services and therapies and all this. But I'm, as a mom who has experienced things that you're going through, I'm going to tell you that like right now, if you do not get the help that you deserve, um, it's not going to get any better and it's going to manifest itself in other ways. And that is something that it took me a couple of years into my doula practice, obviously after I had my child too, to be able to say, because again, older trainings are like, oh my God, never. Like you Mm -hmm. would, you would just be like, oh, here's a therapist. Good luck. And now I'm like, I will call and make an appointment. If you are unable to pick up the phone, like if they have a partner really being also including that partner, not in a, like I'm going behind their back, but like, Hey, can we all sit down and talk about this? Cause again, you're in the fishbowl and what seems rational to a birthing person is not rational. And you're like, Oh my gosh, I know that you want to hold your baby. And I'm like, great, hold your baby. But you're holding your baby to the extent that like, you're not even going to the bathroom alone. You're not even showering alone. Like this is a red flag to me. Why do you feel like you can't, like no one else can touch your baby. And it can be stemmed back sometimes to be like, what happened in the birth space? Oh, your baby was taken from you immediately. Of course that would cause PTSD. Like for no reason, because someone wanted to know what your baby's head circumference was like, (laughs) come on, you know, (laughs) no one cares. No one cares. (laughs) So it's kind of breaking down and being like, actually, yeah, what happened wasn't okay. And let's talk about it. I could not love your phrasing more too in saying the help that you deserve. Like, I just think that's perfect. I wish we could move to a place where we look at mental health as something that we deserve, that space to explore, that space for safety, that's something we deserve. And it's not just like, what a great added bonus, or like, this is something you need. Like, it's like, there's an empowering side of that. That is something that should all be afforded to us if we can, you know, get to this beautiful space in the world. For sure. Like a human being just came out of your body. (laughs) (laughs) Like... (laughs) Or like someone handed you a baby or like you watched someone else 
birth your human, you know, your baby. There's no situation. I mean, even with surrogacy and adoption and all this other stuff, like becoming a parent is incredibly traumatic. It's jarring and not in a negative way. Like it's traumatic because you, you shift very quickly. There's no, there's no space of like, you know that you're going to get the baby, but then someone hands you a baby and is like, good luck. See you later. Um, and, and it's, it's like, okay, there's no system in place to be like, even if you cannot afford a doula, you can do this. You can go here. These are free services. Like the state recognizes that you deserve your hospital. I mean, to go from you birth a baby and then six weeks later, like you might see your OB, like what? Right. Crazy, crazy. And it is something that you deserve. So like this trauma that we incur then affects how we parent. It gives us anxiety. You know, then we think, am I doing something wrong? You know, social media is harder, obviously now on mental health for birthing people, because you look at these perfect houses and you hear these people who are like, my two week old is sleeping 12 hours in their own (laughs) crib. And I'm like, no, they're not, you know, like, and I think that that I wish there was more transparency because I've been in a lot of homes a lot of different people, economic status, jobs, all that. And I will tell you that everyone is a complete mess. So like nobody, nobody has it down, um, despite what social media might show. So it's like that aspect of mental health is like, no, you're not struggling by yourself. You're, we are struggling all together, but like in these isolated situations, unfortunately. I think it really excites me when people talk honestly about this experience because like I didn't even realize what a hormonal postpartum fog I was in until I don't know 8 months later until I felt a little bit different and I was like oh wait I've been living just in like through a completely different lens of life and like I feel lucky about how the, my postpartum experience has gone so far but Though everybody's story is different. We all hurt. We all struggle. We all, you know, get frustrated. We all get sad. Baby blues happen or whatever. You know, it's like, it's all part of it. When I go to lactation visits, one of the number one thing that I hear is how would I have done this several hundred years ago? Like, how did people do this before? And I'm like, well, you would have passed off your baby. They would have gotten fed by a member of your family unit, whatever that looks like. And it's a reminder that like, we're mammals. My doula partner and I, we basically co-parent. So she's a single mom. And so it's really nice to be able to like, I can drop off my son at her house. And like, there's no instruction. Like basically it's like, if I need a couple hours to get stuff done, great to bring him over. Who cares? I know he's safe. I know like when her son comes over, if it's like, we all discipline <laughs> the same, we all discipline. Like if she's, if she's disciplining my son, I'm not going to step in and be like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm like, yeah, he's being a troll right now. Like you tell him like he needs to know. And it actually like starting the co-parenting relationship with her has actually alleviated a lot of the mental health anxiety that I had. And so usually like also being like, obviously the pandemic has really shook up going places and going into groups, but like linking up with people where you can be like, you can take a couple hours off or like, oh, we're all at the beach with your pod. Like let other people parent your kid. Like you're not supposed to be a parent 24 seven. That's like way too heavy of a bag for anyone. Like you need a break. Maybe you need a break. I wish we talked more about that of like, hey, you're not, the, the question isn't how do I do this alone? 
It's why am I, why am I being forced to do this alone? <laughs> like, how do I start doing this with other people? Because that's the way that we as mammals are, you know, pack animals were meant to do this. My sister, we're lucky enough that she's now she moved in and she's living with us. And she's very much been part of the, our unit of parenting and family. And we, we joke because I'm like, I don't know what... I don't know how I would do this without you, honestly. Like, I, it's been incredible having her here. Yeah, my son has a lot of aunties. And it's pretty much like he knows that, like, if Auntie Yasmin is disciplining him, like, and he looks at me, I'll be like, listen to her. Like, mm -hmm. she has a point. I agree with her. You're not supposed to be there. We're like, oh, we're at Auntie Becca's house. She says to get off the table. Even though you're on the table at our house, this is her space. Listen to her. I don't, I'm not expected to parent. And usually I'm like, oh, if I'm in another person's space, I'm actually not going to parent my child um, because it's not my space. And space, different spaces have different rules. And so it helps to really expand of like, Hey, what's cool in one spot might not be cool in another. We walk around naked here, but like when other people, you know, in our house, but if we're in a play date before you get naked, you have to ask consent from everyone, <laughs> like all of this stuff, because this is a different setting. And so having co-parenting relationships and potting up with some of my friends has been life-changing to my mental health. Talking about the consent aspect of birth made me think about the consent aspect when introducing those concepts in parenting. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about that and are introducing your son to those concepts? Oh, it has been a lot of learning on my part. It's weird to say that like growing up with consent, it, it wasn't there. And like consent is something that I have had to, with children have had to really learn and, mm. and I'm in my mid thirties. So it's kind of like, I was meant to, I was told to kiss and hug every relative that asked for it, you know, all that stuff. And there are times where I have to stop of like, oh, he needs help getting into the shower. Like, you know, every time I take off his like pants or shorts or something, I say, are you okay if I take off your pants now? Mm -hmm. and, and like, that has to be like repetition. And, and I definitely do it randomly. Or like, if he's like throwing a fit and I'm trying to get him in his PJs, like, okay, okay. I can't really ask for consent right now. And then I have a panic attack being like, oh my God, but what if, what if this is the time that he remembers? <laughs> but it really is like, it has been a lot of like, relearning, I guess is a really great word of like relearning my concept around consent with children. Cause I think also like, it's kind of easier in my head to be like, Oh, in the birth space, like, yeah, no one should be sticking their fingers inside of you without consent, like whatever. But it, even with, you know, postpartum and lactation, like no one should be touching your breasts if they have not explicitly gained consent. Like you don't not need consent just because the baby's already here. And I think that also my doula practice being like, can I pick up your baby? Like, oh, I'm going to grab them. Is that okay with you? Where would you like that? Like starting to give options to parents had then started to bleed into like how I'm teaching my child. And there are definitely some phrases of like, we don't like no means no, like you don't need a reason. We're being very conscious of like, it's not like a boy thing or a girl thing or things like that. And obviously like learning, right? Like again, in the co-parenting unit of like, oh, if someone asks like, you know, another kid, why does that person have a penis or something like really working with the people in my parenting unit to be like, what should we say? Like, what is a good answer? I've never been presented with this. Like, how do you talk to your children? I'm kind of at a loss because I, I don't know sometimes. Like, sometimes it's okay to be like, I don't know, but I, I'm going to ask around. Yeah. 
I'm really trying to embrace both for myself and for modeling for him that idea of like, I don't know, but let me find out or like, I don't know, but let me get more information and let's talk about it. That type of way of thinking, because I think you don't have to know everything. And so it is so nice to be able to integrate that in. And I think for future generations, hopefully that becomes a little easier for them to do because we need more of that in our world. Yeah. Like I think a lot of people, we started to realize like, there's a lot to break down, right? Like there's gender roles and there's race and there's religion and there's mm-hmm. all this other stuff. And I think a lot of people were, you know, the old way of thinking is like, well, just stay in your lane. Like, that's okay. Like it, it, it's a really, it's really big to think like, okay, how do I rephrase this for a four-year-old to understand? And quite honestly, I pretty much say the first thing that like, after I think about it, say it, like I would talk to an adult and then he either accepts that or he's like, what word, what does that word mean? Why, why are you saying that? And I think that that's really helped being like, I don't need to know the answers to every questions. I have to, I have to hear the questions that he has. And that starts with honesty from me. Cause sometimes I think, Oh my God, I have the best answer. And I start saying it. And he's like, okay, I go play Legos now. <laughs> I'm, like, okay. I'm like, but I had a really good answer. That was brilliant. Bye. <laughs> um, because you want to be conscious. Yeah. We should be having open, honest and conversations. And especially for me, I have a white male, like, he's got a lot to learn and I need him to know it. It is a necessity. And I don't want to skirt around the issue of anything. I want to be very honest and also putting in the work like that as a parent, like there are times, like you said, that I'm like, you know what, honestly, I don't know. And that sparks a lot of research. And then you find this book and then you find this and this, and you're like, wow. Okay. Like, and then you read that with your child and you take all that information. You go back to them. Children are really these amazing, like open books. I I've learned so much from my child and I have a lot of respect for my child because mm-hmm. he's so, he's so honest and he's so like fearless and just being like, why is it like that? And I, I almost like part of that relearning is like, I've always had that question too. And I'm really, I'm really happy that I'm relearning with him. Well, and I also love what you said, because I think sometimes in those situations, you forget it's a conversation and you don't know what he's going to ask approaching it like, okay, we are talking, we are figuring this out together. This is a dialogue and I'm valuing your perspective as well. It's like very important as well. Yeah. And, and I think that I would rather, you know, we try to use like anatomical names for things. And a lot of the people that were around also nurse and everything. So he's seen a lot of boobs and things like that, (laughs) but having that of like, you know, oh, that's okay. If you have a question about that. Great. Right. (laughs) It has been, it has been interesting. Cause I kind of take him, I can take him at face value and I don't have to be like, Oh, he's scared to ask this question. He knows he can ask all the questions he wants and I'm happy to answer them. And also good on you for not projecting onto him, like really taking him for who he is and what's coming to you. Because a lot of the loadedness of some of these conversations absolutely comes from the parents' expectations or relationships too, versus like what's actually playing out in front of you with this child. Yes. That is something that like postpartum I tell, um, clients, I'm like, don't work harder than your child needs you to. Mm. Like if your baby is sleeping five or six hours, then they're three months. That's pretty normal. Whatever. They're sleeping five or six hours. Why do you need them to sleep seven? Like they're there, like, like you're going to work for weeks and weeks and then their teeth is going to pop and you know, they're, they're going to be teething and they 
you're back to square one and you feel really resentful and it's because you've worked harder than your child has asked you to. And you're like, just go with the flow a little bit. Like all that kind of stuff is like, we always, cause we're comparing, right. We're comparing. And I think that that is something that like, I've always tried to be like, am I working harder than, than cubby is my son's name is asking me to. And if the answer is yes. And I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to grab a coffee and just take a minute to myself. <laughs> postpartum, I'm always like, how do we integrate baby into your lifestyle? Um, as opposed to you, as to you, like catering to your child, which is great. We need to, we need to check boxes of, of like they're changed, they're fed, they're bathed, all that stuff. But like, you know, if you are like, Oh my God, this thing on the internet told me that the wake windows are 15 minutes each. And then I need to be playing for 15 minutes. And I'm like, but is that working for you? And they're like, no, this has been horrible, but they're just telling me to keep going. And I'm like, why, why are you keeping, it's not working. What was working? Oh, they wanted to lay and do tummy time for 30 minutes instead of 15. Like who cares? They, they seem to love it. And I think that has really helped me move into the childhood phase because my son loves Legos and there will be days where we don't leave the house and he's just played with Legos for four hours. And I have in the back of my head, this like, Oh my God, he hasn't had any physical exercise and he hasn't gotten out. And I was like, but he's happy. Mm-hmm. He's using so many other parts of his brain. And tomorrow he's got gymnastics and he's got this and we're going on a play date. And like, it, we don't need to check every single box every single day. Mm. And that has really helped me like chill out and be like, yeah, he's happy. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, this is so fun. Thank you so much for talking to me. Of course, my pleasure. Have a wonderful day and we will chat soon. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Week by Week. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Week by Week Podcast and visit our blog at weekbyweekpodcast.com. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and additional resources I used and referenced during this episode. This podcast was produced during the COVID-19 pandemic and recorded remotely. Our show today was produced by me, Celeste Busa, and Dave Hill and edited by Douglas Sarine and Colleen Beasley. Week by Week is a Gumption Pictures production.